grab a seat. Hey, good morning. Uh, this morning we are kicking off our Advent series. Uh, Advent is a Latin word that means appearing or arrival, and so this is the time in the church's life when we celebrate the arrival of Jesus into our world, coming uh, as a man to come and save us. And so to do that, uh, we'll be looking at the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew over the next four weeks. And so if you've got a Bible, you can start making your way to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. If you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on your way in, uh, it's on page 757. And if you didn't grab one of those and you need one, feel free to go grab one of those uh, and you'll be able to see this as well. Uh, well, most of you know, uh, I have always loved to read, and one of the things that I really love to read is a good story. Uh, I love good fiction, and one of the things that's really important uh, in good fiction is a compelling introduction, an introduction that arrests your attention and grabs you and makes you invested quickly. You know, if you're reading nonfiction, you're usually reading it for the information you feel like is going to be in that book, something you want to get out of that book so you can overlook uh, a bad introduction. Sometimes you don't even read the introduction, but when it comes to fiction, uh, there's so many things competing for our attention and what we're going to entertain ourselves with, um, how we're going to spend our leisure time, that uh, if it doesn't hook you pretty quickly, if it doesn't get you invested pretty quickly, you're, you're probably just not going to spend the time reading a four, three or 400 page novel. You're not going to invest the time that it takes to do that. Uh, if you were to go into Barnes & Noble and go to the fiction section and uh, pick up a book off the shelf that catches your attention and start reading the first few pages, if you don't get that feeling pretty quickly of, man, I've got to figure out what happens here. I've got to figure out what happens in this story with these characters, uh, you're probably going to put it back. All of which to say, introductions are just crucially important when you're telling a story uh, but what we're about to see as we read Matthew's introduction to his gospel is that it, it seems like on first read that Matthew kind of missed that memo. And what's interesting about this is Matthew actually has the best story in the world to tell. It's the true story of the entire world. Uh, and on top of that, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So he's the first person that gets to tell us about the event and the person on literally, which literally all of human history turns, and he starts off his gospel with, of all things, a genealogy, a, a list of names from the Old Testament. I mean, what in the world, right? You really couldn't have thought of anything better to start off your gospel with than that? But what I want to show you this morning is that this is actually the best way that Matthew could have introduced us to Jesus. This is the best introduction that Matthew could have had because Matthew is not just reciting some dry history. He is preaching the gospel with this genealogy. This genealogy preaches the gospel because what this genealogy tells us is that God keeps all of his promises. It tells us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Savior who fulfills all of the promises of the prophets, all the promises of the Old Testament. And so let's read this together and see this together in the text now. Matthew chapter 1, uh, we'll read through the first 17 verses. Starting in verse 1, the word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, 
and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of uh, Salmon, Salmon the father, father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliot, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to, the ba- to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray for God's help on our time together this morning. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the good news that we see even in this genealogy. Would you help us to see it this morning? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to believe and know? God, this Christmas season, would you let the gospel and the promise of the gospel and the way the gospel shows that you've kept your promises, would you refresh our hearts with that good news this morning that you've come to deliver us, that you have come to rescue us when we could not rescue ourselves, that you keep all your promises. God, for those in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus, would would today be the day you open up their eyes to hear and believe and see the good news? God, would you refresh our hearts even now as we walk through this genealogy? I pray that you would. In your name, amen. Well, maybe you noticed as we read through the genealogy, but verse 1 really functions like a heading or like a title, an outline that gives you what Matthew wants to emphasize, what he's trying to say with this genealogy. And so everything that's in this title, in this outline in verse 1 is important, and it really, again, forms the outline for this genealogy. And so that's how we'll walk through it. This, This heading and this genealogy shows us four promises that Jesus fulfills, and the first is that Jesus fulfills the promise of a new creation. Because Matthew begins, and he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I hate doing this. I really try to avoid it, because you don't need to know Greek to read and understand your Bible uh, at all. And you can see this in English, but I want to bring this out because you'll know these words, and uh, I think it helps you see the point a little bit more clearly. And uh, So this phrase that's translated here, book of the genealogy, is biblos geneseos in Greek. And you don't need to know Greek to know what those words sound like. Biblos sounds like what? 
Bible, right? And it's where we get our word Bible from, and it means book. And Geneseos sounds like what? Genesis. And if you were a first century Jewish person who's hearing the gospel of Matthew, and you knew your Bible, your ears would perk up when this phrase was read. Because by this time, the Old Testament had been translated from Hebrew into Greek, and most people were familiar with the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's only two times that this phrase is used. Anybody want to guess where? Uh, in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Genesis 2, 4, when it says, these are the generations, or the genesis of the heavens and the earth when they were created, because that's what Genesis means. It means beginning. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, these are the generations of Adam and his descendants. And then it gives us a genealogy of Adam and his descendants, talking about who Adam and his descendants generated or fathered, who they gave birth to. Uh, and then on top of that, the book of Genesis itself is actually structured by 10 different genealogies that are spread and scattered throughout the book. And so Matthew, by using this phrase and by kicking us off with a genealogy, he's alluding back to Genesis. He's pointing us back to Genesis, and he's saying, this book that I'm writing this is the new Genesis. This is the book of the new Genesis of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is bringing a new beginning. Jesus is bringing a new start, a new Genesis. Because the hope of the gospel and the promise of the gospel is not just that we would have our sins forgiven, it's that the whole world would be redeemed. That God would remove and get sin and death and Satan out of his creation so that we could spend eternity with him on a new earth, free from sin, free from death, free from corruption. And so even from the first words in this genealogy, Matthew is preaching the gospel and is telling us that in the coming of Jesus, that promise is being fulfilled. That sin's days are numbered. Corruption's days are are numbered. Death has a death date when it will be no more, and through Jesus, you and I can experience some of that even now. We can be made new creations because Jesus fulfills God's promise to bring about a new creation, and the rest of this genealogy shows us specifically how he does that. And so he goes on in verse 1. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he gives the descendants from Abraham to David in verses 2 through 6. And so we'll talk about these next. This is the second promise that Jesus fulfills. Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham. Because by Matthew calling Jesus the son of Abraham, he wants you to think back to the Old Testament and think back to the promise that God made to Abraham. And where we first get that promise is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this promise from Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, his name's later changed to Abraham, he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God's promise to Abraham is that he's going to bless Abraham and his family so that through Abraham and his family, all the nations of the earth, 
all the peoples of the earth would find blessing and salvation. And what we find out as we keep reading the book of Genesis is that that promise is specifically going to happen through one of Abraham's offspring, through a son of Abraham. And so Matthew is just laying this out, and he's saying, Jesus is that son of Abraham. Jesus is the one that this promise was about who uh, will bless all peoples of the world and all nations through uh, his coming. And so when you hear the promise to Abraham, what you should start thinking about is family. God is making a promise about his family and how he's going to fill his family with people from all the nations and not just Israelites. And you can see this really clear in these verses, in this genealogy, because when you read through this genealogy, there's some names that stick out in the genealogy. Um, back in this day and time, most people did not put women in their genealogy. Descent was traced through the father, and women were marginalized. They were viewed as cultural outsiders during this day and time, so you wouldn't put them in your genealogy. But Matthew has five women in Jesus' genealogy, counting Mary, the mother of Jesus. And these women tell us an incredible story, because all four of these women listed in verses 2 through 6 were not Israelites. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, enemies of the people of God. Ruth was a Moabite, also enemies of the people of God. And Bathsheba, the wife of, wife of Uriah, uh, she was most likely a Hittite like her husband Uriah. And, and back in this day and time, these distinctions mattered. Israelites really cared about these distinctions. I mean, this would be like today, an Israelite marrying a, a Palestinian. I mean, just think about the hatred that these two people groups have for each other right now. Think about how an Israelite's family members would treat them if they brought somebody from a people group that they despise, that they hate, into their family and made them a part of their family. Well, in the same way, the Jewish people in the first century cared about these distinctions. It was not right. It was never supposed to be this way. God never approved of this, but they cared about being racially and culturally pure. And they viewed people who intermixed with other peoples and other groups as compromisers and sellouts, and they would not have wanted them in their family and in their people. But God is not like that. They may not have wanted them in their family, but God wants them in his family. Peter Lightheart puts it so well. He says, Matthew does not want to give us a pure blood genealogy. He wants to show us that in Jesus, in his own body, flows the blood of Canaanites and Moabites and the wife of a Hittite. And so this genealogy is showing us that the people that the world passes over, the people that the world excludes and leaves out, will not be excluded by Jesus. And maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe you feel like an outcast, like there isn't really a spot for you in Jesus's family, that you don't really belong. But Matthew is telling you, no, Jesus has not forgotten about you. Jesus will not pass you over. Jesus will not leave you out. The invitation into Jesus' family is open to anyone who will repent of their sins and put their trust in him. And this Christmas, you can be brought into the family. You can be brought into the family of God. You can belong. 
This is the good news that this promise gives us, but, but the promise to Abraham being fulfilled in Jesus is not just good news for us, it's also good news for the world. God fulfilling his promise to Abraham in Jesus also puts a call on us as well. Because if Jesus welcomes everybody into God's family by grace, and the only distinction between who is in Jesus' family and who is not is repentance and faith, then there's no room for us to exclude and pass over people that the world passes over. There's no room for us to view people with the same lenses that the world does of success and status and hierarchy. There's no room for us to exclude because Jesus has opened up his arms wide. That is, Jesus did not just save and show grace to the pretty people, to the successful people, to the movers and shakers, and so we shouldn't either. This promise is open to anyone who will repent and believe. There are no other qualifications for it, and so we can't be a people who reassert those qualifications as well. But not just that, this promise also is one of the main reasons why we should want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. That's why we should want to see the gospel go to our friends and to our family members and to our neighbors. If this is how God, this, this is how God is fulfilling his plan to bless all the nations through Jesus. And so when we share the good news of Jesus with people and they believe in Jesus, this promise is being more and more fulfilled. And we should want to take part in that. We should want to see more people come into God's family. Because Jesus is the son of Abraham who welcomes into God's family anyone who will put their trust in him. But Matthew doesn't just say that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He also says that he's the son of David. And, and once again, by, by calling him the son of David, he wants us to think back to the Old Testament and think back to God's promise to David. Uh, and that promise is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Listen to these words, what God says to David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promises David he's going to raise up a son who will bring God's presence to his people and will rule over God's people forever as their king. And again, Matthew's laying it out and saying, Jesus is that son of David. He's the one that promise was about. He is the king who will bring God's presence to God's people and will rule over them as their king forever. And I know that might still sound a little bit abstract and you're wondering, well, how is that good news? Well, here's how. Back in this day, your genealogy was your resume. I know today your resume is your resume. Like we value you and, and the world values you based on what you've done and what you've accomplished. But that wasn't the case back in this day. Back in this day, who you came from and who was in your family tree was most important in determining who you were and why you mattered in the world. And so just like today, people will fudge on their resumes to make themselves look better. People back then would fudge on their genealogies to make themselves look better. If they had somebody in their family that they didn't want to be associated with, they would downplay that. They wouldn't put that person in their genealogy. They'd just skip over that name 
in the list. On the other hand, if they had somebody they wanted to emphasize and wanted you to know about, they try to pump that up as much as possible. And, and that makes sense to us, right? I mean, if you have a bunch of axe murderers in your family back 100 years ago, you're probably not going to lead with that in conversations, right? You're just not going to volunteer that information to people. But on the other hand, if you descend from somebody famous, you're going to work that into every conversation that you can. I mean, you're going to say things like, well, the reason I must be so smart is because I'm descended from Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein is my great-great-grandfather. Did you know that Albert Einstein is my great-great-grandfather? And so because of this, you would expect that, that because Matthew's trying to show us that Jesus is the promised king, that he's the son of David, that he's the one who's qualified to rule as the king over God's people forever, you would expect Matthew to do this with Jesus' genealogy and resume, to uh, kind of downplay or cover over those names Jesus really shouldn't be associated with and really play up the important ones. But the crazy thing is, Matthew actually does the exact opposite. He does not hide it. He actually highlights the junk and the mess that's found in Jesus' family tree. Because let's just talk about a few of the names on this list. Verse 3 tells us that Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Why does Matthew list Tamar in the genealogy? Well, obviously because Jesus came from Tamar, but remember, most people don't put women in their genealogy. So one of the reasons Matthew is doing this is because he wants us to remember that story. And if you're not familiar with that story, that story is found in Genesis uh, chapter 38. Uh, Judah had three sons, and Tamar was married to the oldest of his three sons. And Judah's oldest son was a wicked man, and so God put him to death for that. Uh, and the cultural law in that day was that if uh, your brother died before he and his wife could have children, you as his brother uh, were supposed to sleep with his wife and give him children through his wife to continue on his name and his inheritance. And so Judah gives his second son to Tamar, but his second son is also wicked. And when he sleeps with Tamar, he makes sure that she won't get pregnant. And you can read in Genesis 38 about how he did that. I'm not going to tell you how he did that. Uh, but he did that, and God put him to death for that. And so by this point, I assume Judah thinks, well, Tamar's cursed. She's kind of bad luck. And so he lies to her, and he says, well, just wait till my third son is grown up, and he's of marriageable age, and I'll give him to you. Well, his third son grows up, and he doesn't keep his word to Tamar, and Tamar realizes he's not going to do what he said he was going to do for me. And so she finds out when Judah is going to go on a business trip, and she goes on ahead of him uh, on the road that he's going to be taking, and she dresses up like a prostitute and meets him on the road, and Judah uh, engages with her and uh, sleeps with her, and to pay her, uh, he basically gives her the equivalent of his wallet and his driver's license as collateral uh, for this. And so he sleeps with her and impregnates her, all the while not knowing who it is that he slept with. And so he does his business trip. They both come back home. A few months down the road, Tamar starts to show, and Judah is furious because he knows that she didn't sleep with his third son like she was supposed to. And so he has her, uh, he arranges for her to be put to death. And as she's on the way to slaughter, uh, she walks by him and holds up his driver's license and his wallet and says, I'm pregnant by the man whose stuff this is. And so Judah, at that point, knows that he's caught. Uh, and so he says, well, 
She's more righteous than I am. She's more in the right in this situation than I am because I didn't do what I said I was going to do and what I was supposed to do. I didn't give her my third son. And so that whole Jerry Springer episode is in Jesus's family tree. Uh, Tamar dressed up like a, like a prostitute. Rahab, who's listed here, she actually was a prostitute. Uh, and then uh, Ruth was a virtuous woman, but she was a Moabite. Does anybody know where the Moabites come from? That story is also found in Genesis. Genesis chapter 19, Abraham's cousin Lot had two daughters, and Lot's two daughters get their father Lot drunk on back-to-back -back nights and take turns sleeping with him on back-to-back -back nights and both get impregnated by him, and the oldest daughter Mary, uh, names her son Moab, and that's where the Moabites come from. So that incestuous relationship, that's where the Moabites come from, and Ruth is a Moabite. On, on top of that, if that's not bad enough, then we hear that David the king is in Jesus' genealogy, that David fathered Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, David's one of the most important people in the Old Testament. You could probably argue that he is the most important person in the Old Testament. And so you read this name, and you're like, man, Jesus descends from David. That's a big deal. That's a great name to have on the resume. And it is, but instead of Matthew highlighting one of David's many accomplishments, he instead puts his greatest sin against God into the genealogy. He reminds us of the time when David lusted after one of his best friend's wives, took her by force, slept with her, impregnated her, and then to cover up his sin, had one of his best friends, Uriah, and her husband had him murdered. And on and on we could go. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines and was an idolater who turned away from God. Most of the rest of these kings listed in the genealogy were an absolute joke, and it was their sin and their rebellion that got Israel taken into captivity and exile. And so this list of names should not bore you. It should absolutely stun you. You should be saying, this is who Jesus comes from? Jesus has this dysfunctional of a family tree? You know, think about it. You and I, we don't get to choose who we come from and who's in our family tree, but Jesus does. And these people of all people are the people that Jesus chooses to be his human family. This is how he chooses to build up his resume. I mean, this is scandalous. And it just highlights how wild and how incredible God's grace is. Because God is showing us, Matthew is showing us that God is faithful to keep his promises, and he is faithful to include broken and jacked up people in those promises.